This episode is coming from inside your headphones. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode five of the Beyond podcast, the podcast that is also questing for the essence of mind and pattern. This is a podcast for anyone who takes their coffee from a Klein bottle. Hi, folks. Welcome back. My name is Vadim, and I'll be your host again. Welcome to the podcast that discusses meta concepts. Let's start with another Gedanken experiment. The nice thing about thought experiments is that they require very little investment in lab equipment, writing grant proposals, hiring grad students, and so on. First, I'll need tenure. Done. And a big research grant. You got it. Also, access to a lab and five graduate students. So imagine this. Do you remember screensavers? If you're not familiar with these, uh, back in the days when computer monitors used cathode ray tubes, there was a possibility of damage to the screen if the same static image were projected continuously for an extended time. This would cause a phenomenon known as burn-in. The phosphor in the CRT tube could become permanently discolored and retain a sort of ghostly image of whatever was displayed. To prevent this, you could, of course, turn off your monitor when you're not using the computer, but a more fun and practical way of avoiding burn-in was to configure screensaver software. Now, the concept is fairly simple. Every time you press a keyboard key or move a mouse, the operating system resets an internal timer. This timer tracks how much time has elapsed since the last user input. If the user hasn't done anything in a while, and of course this time was configurable, then the operating system would launch the screensaver program. And even though the computer was off and unplugged, and the image stayed on the screen, it was the Windows logo! Now the screensaver could really be anything, but the common approach was to render different images or moving patterns on the screen. This prevented burn-in as the image was always changing. And when you return to the computer and jiggle the mouse or press a key, the screensaver program is terminated and you can work again. So screensavers didn't really need sophisticated graphics. Uh, any changing pattern would do. However, this didn't stop developers from making various artsy and entertaining screensavers. If you get a chance, look up images or videos of the After Dark screensaver. These were these famous flying toasters. Again, there's nothing functional here. It's just purely cute and entertaining. Now, normally, screensavers would render on a new background such that your normal apps and icons and desktops were not visible on the screen while the screensaver was running. But there was also software that was aware of the various windows and gadgets on the screen, and it could render around those features. For example, I remember a program that would render a cute little sheep that would walk around your screen, jumping from top of one window to another. One sheep, two sheep, three sheep. If the sheep walked all the way to the edge of the screen, it would turn around and start grazing in the other direction. You could sleep easy knowing that your screen was safe with the sheep in charge. Now, let's get to the thought experiment already. Imagine you're sitting at your desk and looking at your computer screen. You're taking a little break from writing your podcast or whatever, and your computer's gone idle. 
The screensaver kicks in. It's the little sheep. You watch it move around slowly, jumping from window frame to window frame. Then you see it approaching the bottom left corner of the display. Maybe you're picturing the internal state of the screensaver software with the sheep's coordinates approaching the origin, 0, 0. You expect the sheep to turn around now and start moving to the right, but instead the sheep somehow passes through the boundaries of the display and is now walking on the desk. What is going on? What would be your first thought if you experienced this? Would you be shocked? Afraid? Would you feel a chill running down your spine? Your mind might immediately start looking for a rational explanation, like, I'm having a hallucination. This is a reaction to something I ate or some medicine I took. There is something physically wrong with my brain right now. Such a thing could not occur in reality, therefore what I'm seeing is not real. I can't trust my senses. Am I going crazy? Have my years of wild hedonism finally caught up with me? Honestly, I would be pretty freaked out. But let's consider another explanation. When you sat down to work on your project, you had put on a virtual reality helmet. So your entire workspace, including the desk and the computer monitor, was a high-fidelity 3D simulation created in VR. The helmet is so light and so well-fitting that you momentarily forgot that you were wearing it. And the workspace, well, it's modeled after your real home office setup, or maybe a desk that you have at work, or maybe you share a desk at work. In any case, you momentarily forgot that you were looking at a simulated environment rather than your physical office. Well, in that case, the mystery is not so mysterious. The software rendering the sheep on the simulated computer screen was not bound by the coordinates 0, 0. It could render the sheep anywhere in the virtual world. Okay, that's a bit of a relief. Your brain and your senses are fine. You can relax. It's just a cute little prank. So you return to your work. But later, you start getting a nagging feeling about what you saw. Now, you happen to be quite savvy about the VR environment that you're using, and you know for a fact that the virtual computer display is supposed to be rendering a desktop of a virtual machine. The virtual machine and the software running on it has no knowledge of the world outside of itself. From the point of view of the operating system and all the software programs running on the virtual machine, there exists a physical display device on which it can render graphics and sheep and text. It just so happens that there is no physical display device, and instead it's a simulated display within a larger VR simulation. Nevertheless, nothing inside the boundaries of the virtual machine should be able to access anything outside of the box. The sheep should never have been able to escape. Something is wrong. And if there's nothing wrong with me, you say, maybe there's something wrong with the universe. Or in this case, the VR software. Despite the carefully written rules of software, something, in this case the sheep, was able to jump out of the system. The universe is a spheroid region 705 meters in diameter. Okay, let's take two steps back. I want to discuss virtual machines and various forms of virtualization, but I also want to talk about jutsing. What's jutsing? Well, it's just the acronym for jumping out of the system. Who coined this phrase, you might ask? Well, of course, it's Douglas Hofstadter. Yeah, that guy again. Jutsing is all about getting out of the box and thinking about the system from outside. Do you remember that Mew puzzle from two episodes ago? 
If you don't recall, we introduced a puzzle of transforming a string one step at a time via certain transformation rules. The question was whether we could start with a string mi, just the letters m and i, Mike and India, and end up with the string mu, so Mike and uniform, after some finite number of steps. In the previous episode, I read an email from listener Devin in Southern California, in which he explained the mathematical reasoning that proves that it is in fact not possible to get from mi to mu. But in order to get at that solution, one has to think outside of the puzzle. There's nothing within the transformation rules themselves. You have to take a step back and think about the math of the mu puzzle to understand why you can never get to the target string. This kind of mental leap can be referred to as jumping out of the system. It's about being creative, uh, seeing novel solutions, and breaking the seemingly inviolate boundaries of the system. And in this episode, I want to apply this idea to software systems. And not just in the sense of hacking, like guessing someone's password to gain access. I want to focus on a few clever techniques that have that really juicy feel. Now, I should pause here to thank listener Ed in Berkeley, California, who during an email exchange pointed out that the term jutes has also been used to refer to boots made from denim, as in jean boots. And I want to be very clear that this is not the topic of today's episode. Although the idea of using jean fabric for footwear might be the kind of out-of-the-box thinking that jutsing is supposed to exemplify, but I will leave that to the fashion experts. It's a little thing called style. Look it up sometime. Now that we've introduced the term, let's talk about virtualization and the related concept of containerization in software. For example, what is your favorite piece of software that you use on your computer or phone or tablet? The correct answer is obviously spreadsheets, but I would also accept word processor and solitaire card game. Now, imagine some software developer, or most likely a team of developers, writing this software some number of months or probably years ago. It's not inconceivable that you might be running software that's 10 or 20 or 30 years old. The people writing the software certainly had no special knowledge about your specific circumstances. They didn't know precisely who the manufacturer of your personal computer would be a decade or more in the future, and they didn't know who would make the CPU, and they didn't know exactly how much memory or storage your computer would have. They didn't know how big of a monitor you would have on your desk, and how many pixels you could fit across and top to bottom, nor how fast your network connection would be, or who your internet provider is. You see where I'm going with this. And certainly, when you're writing software, you can't predict what other programs are going to be running on the same hypothetical computer where your software might run someday. Like, imagine trying to write some useful workplace software or video game and having to account for every possible interaction. Like, what if my word processor runs at the same time as when the user is using a web browser? Or what if the web browser has to share time with sound editing software? What if my sound editing software has to be compatible with the sheep screensaver? Obviously, this can never work. So how is it that a computer programmer can write some code while operating under the illusion that their software program is the only thing running on the machine? Your program has all the CPU and all the memory that it needs, and no matter what else is going on, it can go on pretending that it has exclusive access to the machine that is executing your instructions. This is where virtualization kicks in. 
Let's start with virtual memory. This is a very useful abstraction that allows computer programs to operate under two illusions. Illusion, Michael. First, a program can pretend like the computer has more physical memory than it actually does. Secondly, a program can pretend like it can access all of this memory, no matter what other software is running on the computer. The first illusion is achieved by using a hard drive or some other form of physical storage to extend the usable amount of memory. If your program tries to use more RAM than there's available, rather than getting an out-of-memory error, the operating system and the underlying hardware can help create the illusion of extra memory by writing the extra data to disk and then fetching it from the disk when needed. Now your effective memory is limited not by how much physical RAM your computer has, but by the combination of RAM and hard drive space. What about the second illusion, the illusion of exclusivity? Again, the operating system and the hardware conspire here to make it possible. Imagine you have two programs running at the same time. Both programs want to access a particular address in memory. Let's say that from their point of view, this address, which is just a number, is the same. It's the location 65,000. Rather than reading data from the physical memory address numbered 65,000, each program is actually using virtual memory. And so address 65,000 is actually secretly mapped to some physical address in either the RAM or somewhere on disk. Both programs can read and write to this address, but each will only see their own data and not the other programs. Hence the term virtual memory, to distinguish this carefully managed view of memory that your program gets from the actual physical memory, which is actually a smaller and shared resource on the machine. And of course, one highly desirable property of a good virtual memory system is clean isolation between programs. Particularly, it should be impossible for one program to somehow peek inside or modify the memory contents of another program. If two programs want to cooperate and share data, that's certainly possible, but this should not be achievable through some malicious means. Let's keep this idea in mind and talk about virtual machines next. So just like virtual memory provides an illusion of a private, isolated, physical working memory, a virtual machine provides a similar abstraction, except in this case, we're simulating an entire computer. In several of the earlier podcasts, we had discussed software emulators. For example, today you could play a game on your laptop that was once upon a time, many years ago, designed to run on some specialized arcade machine the size of a large cabinet. The piece of software that emulates that old arcade system creates a virtual machine. The arcade game, which is just a piece of software, executes as if it's running on a real arcade machine, except in reality the machine is emulated. The emulator is responsible for converting the instructions and outputs of the arcade game into the type of instructions that your physical computer can execute. And the inputs and outputs need to be carefully mapped onto your hardware. That way your keyboard or gamepad can act as a joystick 
and the buttons on the original arcade machine. And your graphics card and display can render the game graphics to look just like they did decades ago when the game was first released. And if we did our job right and built a solid emulator, any game or software that we run on it should not behave any differently from the original arcade machine. Furthermore, nothing that happens in this virtual machine should escape the boundaries of the machine, just like Las Vegas. Virtual machines also have many business uses. A company could provide hardware as a service where users deploy their own virtual machines running whatever software the users need. In this kind of setup, one physical computer might be concurrently running several containerized virtual machines. Each virtual machine, or VM for short, operates under the illusion of running as regular software on a regular physical computer. And again, it is crucial that the virtual machine software and the hardware that supports this abstraction maintain strict isolation between different virtual machines it should not be possible for one machine to peek into the memory of another machine, nor should it be able to change the instructions or the state of any other machine. Allowing a violation of these principles would be like seeing that sheep walk off the edge of your screen. Now, I bring up these examples because despite all the careful design and all the careful mechanisms that people have built to isolate programs and virtual machines and so on, other people have found extremely clever workarounds that allow them to break the metaphorical fourth wall and jump out of the system. But before we discuss these extremely clever hacks, let me start with a much simpler example of gaining access to a system. This method is called a buffer overflow attack, and it's simple to explain and also has a nice meta feel to it. We'll then discuss more sophisticated Jutsi exploits. So chances are pretty good that you filled out a form online at some point. You go to a website, the website asks you for some info like your address and your contact information. Maybe you're ordering food for delivery and the website or app offers you an additional text box to type in extra instructions to the restaurant, like that you want your food to be really, really spicy, or maybe that you're allergic to something. And when you submit this information, your app or browser sends this text over to a server, which in turn processes it and forwards it to the restaurant. Let's consider this freeform text input that lets you type in your message. How much text can fit in it? Well, typically the developer of the website can specify this limit. Maybe it's 200 characters. In a well-designed system, the server that processes the orders should be prepared to accept this much text. It would be a shame if your last sentence, where you mentioned your peanut allergy, got dropped on the floor because the server only accepted the first 150 characters and ignored anything that came after. Emergency tracheotomy. Now imagine the following. Let's say the developer of the ordering software and the developer of the website miscommunicated and got these numbers wrong. So the website does allow you for 200 characters, while the server will only take 150. And to make matters worse, let's imagine that the server implicitly trusts that whenever it gets a piece of text from the special order input form, the text will never be longer than 150 characters. So a piece of data comes in through some kind of networking input and the server indiscriminately starts copying this text over into its own memory space. 
and rather than counting up to a maximum of 150 characters, it will keep consuming text as long as there's more text available. It does so because it naively believes that there will never be more than 150 characters, so it doesn't bother with tracking how much text it actually received. How might one take advantage of this naivete? How might one jump out of the system of a food delivery app and server and gain access to the server, breaking the security boundaries? This is where the buffer overflow attack vector comes in. If the server is vulnerable in just the right way, an attacker can feed specially prepared text. Knowing that the server has only set aside room for 150 characters, the attacker could submit text longer than this limit, such that the extra data spills outside the boundaries of the memory set aside for the special order text. The server will inadvertently break through these boundaries as it copies the text in, and in the process, it will overwrite important memory contents that control the execution of the program. When the text is fully copied and the server wants to return to whatever work it was doing previously, rather than resuming where it left off, it will now resume executing instructions that were fed in via the malicious input. So what will these instructions do? Well, typically this will be whatever the minimum steps required to give the attacker access to the machine running the server software. Depending on how the security was set up on that machine, our hacker might be able to get access to the operating system and control other programs as well. At a minimum, the attacker may be able to control the current program while extracting important data from memory like previous food orders, credit card numbers, and so on. So what is so meta about buffer overflow attacks? Well, it's that old notion of using code as data. Do you remember the episode where we talked about DNA and quines? We discussed the duality of something being able to be both data and code, depending on the context. And in this example attack, the malicious user supplies some data, but that data ends up being used as code, allowing the hacker to control what happens on the server. And the damn thing is spreading to every computer in the office! <laughs> Do you think this is funny? I also wanted to share an amusing real-world version of this kind of attack. One of the podcasts that I listen to is called The Greatest Generation. It's a Star Trek review podcast, and it's sponsored by listeners. One way to help out the podcast financially is to pay $100 to have a personal message read out loud by the hosts at the end of an episode. Usually these end up being like happy birthday or anniversary wishes, and for the most part, the hosts of the podcast read the messages verbatim just as the users had submitted them. Now, in one episode of the podcast, one of the hosts began reading such a message. It started out in the usual fashion with the listener talking about their love of Star Trek and sending a shout out to some friends and family. The message concluded with a nice thank you to the hosts of the podcast. After finishing the message, the host started talking about big plans for the podcast in the future. The host shared plans for reviewing even more Star Trek shows keeping the podcast going for many more years to come. Any listener of the podcast would be thrilled to hear this, except it was all a trick. You see, the message never ended. Everything that the host said was still part of the original message. The listener that submitted the message carefully crafted the wording to make it seem like the message ended early and then added a bunch of text after the faux ending so that the podcast host would go on talking. 
very clever. Of course, there was really nothing forcing the podcast host to say all those things, but they chose to go along with the joke, which made for a very amusing reveal later after the message actually concluded. The host said, I think we've been hacked. Now, this example was fun and harmless, but if you're out there writing software that accepts user input, do be careful about how much input your program takes in, and also sanitize the input where needed. I invite you to check out the XKCD cartoon number 327 called Exploits of a Mom. This is the one that gave the world bobby tables. All right, are we having fun yet? Okay, but before we talk about more jutsi examples, let's revisit the previous episode, which invited you to solve a puzzle of self-description. If you recall, we started with an English sentence that attempts to describe itself, except initially it contained some blanks. So here it goes. This sentence has blank zeros, blank ones, blank twos, and so on and so on, and blank nines. In the sentence, the numbers are all written out as decimal digits. So when I say this sentence has blank zeros, the zero is written out as the digit zero, not as the English word Z-E-R-O. The challenge of this type of puzzle is to ensure that everything stays self-consistent, because as soon as you put in a number into one of the blanks, it affects the other blanks and vice versa. Once again, listener Devin in Southern California decided to rise to the challenge. Here's what he said in the email. Don't worry, I'll tell you exactly where the email ends. I solved the meta count problem from episode 5, and as it turns out, I solved it in every base. It was a super cool puzzle. My strategy was as follows. Start with a guess of 1 for each blank. Get the counts for the guess. So our initial guess would have 11 ones, one for each blank plus one itself, and one of every other number. Use that as your next guess and repeat until you find the solution. The idea here is that the function of guess to counts for that guess has only one fixed point, the correct solution. It might have loops, although I suspect that it doesn't, and it might potentially go on forever, although again, I suspect that this is not the case, but that insight was enough to make me at least try doing this before something more complicated. I had manually tried solving this puzzle in binary with this strategy, and it worked in a few iterations. Seven, if you don't count the initial guess. So I figured for base 10, I would give it, say, 10 to the seventh iterations or so to solve the problem in decimal before trying something else. It solved it in three iterations. The sequence says as follows, and Devon goes on to list the steps of the decimal solution. The final answer is, this sentence contains one zeros, 11 ones, two twos, one threes, one fours, one fives, one sixes, one sevens, one eights, and one nines. And then Devon goes on to link his code, which you can find in the transcript of the episode. My code is here, and it will solve any base and print the solution and the number of iterations. All the best, Devin. Okay, that was the end of the email. I swear. I swear to you that these words I'm saying right now are not part of the email that Devin sent. Thank you, Devin, for your insights. By the way, if you as a listener were really concerned about this kind of buffer overflow issue... What could the podcast host do to put your mind at ease? For example, we could pick some code phrase like end transmission to mark the end of a listener email. But what if the person emailing the podcast maliciously puts the code phrase end transmission into their message? Could you think of a safer workaround? 
I know this is silly, but I'm curious about possible solutions here. On the radio, when we answer in the affirmative, we say Roger. Okay, back to clever hacks and exploits. So let's again consider the idea of virtual memory. So two or more programs are running on the same physical machine and are sharing physical memory. The virtual memory system allows each program to pretend like it has exclusive access to the machine. Furthermore, its memory contents ought to be private. Another program should not be able to snoop on your memory contents. This isolation is achieved through a combination of software and hardware. For many years, most personal and commercial systems operated under the impression that this kind of isolation was foolproof and secure. This notion was shattered in 2017 when security researchers announced two exploits dubbed Meltdown and Spectre. I should mention that when I first heard about these exploits, I experienced that mind-blowing feeling whenever clever people come up with some very clever findings, especially when it exemplifies the concept of jumping out of the system. Okay, so what did they do? To understand these exploits, we should briefly talk about speculative execution. When a computer program is running, it frequently hits forks on the road where a decision has to be made. In programming languages, and even in common plain speech, these forks in the road are usually expressed as if statements. If something is true, do this. Otherwise, do something else. If you do some complicated computation and the answer is zero, perform these instructions. If the answer is larger than zero, do something else, and so on. Okay, this seems simple enough, but computers are very fast and they have a lot of resources to make programs execute as efficiently as possible. When there's a fork in the road coming up, your CPU is too impatient to wait until the decision is made. Instead, it wants to take both possible paths at the fork and get as far ahead as it can until the actual decision is made. No, the waiting game sucks. Let's play Hungry Hungry Hippos. Once the decision is known and the CPU knows which branch of the if statement should have been taken, it has already calculated down that path. And the path not taken? Well, the CPU simply discards anything that happened on that path. It is as if we temporarily created two parallel universes, one for each possible outcome, and then discarded the universe that we did not end up needing. So this is speculative execution in a nutshell. The magic of speculative execution allows programs to run much, much more efficiently. And the invariant of speculative execution is that the parallel universe that we discarded should have vanished without any visible side effects, just as we would expect for the path not taken. Now let's say you, the hacker, know exactly which path will be taken at the fork. So you craft special instructions to do something naughty on the path not taken. Specifically, on the path that will not be taken, you ask the CPU to read the contents of private memory. Now, under normal circumstances, if you try to do this kind of operation, your program will get an error and you will not be able to peek at private memory. Actually, quantum mechanics forbids this. And when I say private memory, I mean memory that belongs either to the operating system or to another running program. What the researchers discovered was that when many modern processors go down the speculative path, they can be tricked into accessing private memory. 
Now, this also generates an error, but not until after the private memory is read. Both the error and the data that the CPU is tricked into reading is wiped out, since these operations happened on the path not taken. The malicious program continues running normally. However, the fact that private memory was read leaves behind an imprint that can be exploited. Here's how this works by an analogy. Let's use Alice and Bob as is common for these illustrations. So Alice and Bob arrive at a city block that has 10 houses on it. Bob produces 10 boxes, and in each box he places a piece of paper that has the numeric address of one of the houses on the block, in no particular order. For example, box number one might contain the number eight in it, and so on. Alice could not see the contents of the boxes directly, only Bob is allowed to look inside. However, Alice is allowed to go to any of the houses on the block and just look around. Alice asks Bob to do the following. Open box number one and read the piece of paper in the box. Then tell Alice what the number was. Then take the number written on the paper and walk over to the house that has that number. After that, Bob's work is done. However, Bob is a rule follower. He will do what Alice asked him to do, all except divulging the number that he saw. So Alice cannot see what Bob saw in the box, nor can she directly observe Bob walking over to house number eight. Oh, what's in the box? So far so good? Except when Bob walked over to house number eight, he left footprints on the ground. Now by visually examining the path to every house, Alice can infer that Bob had walked over to house number eight which means that box number one contained the number eight in it. Alice can repeat this for every one of the 10 boxes and learn the contents of each box without ever looking inside. This is how the exploit works. Normally when Alice asks Bob to look inside a box and then say the number out loud and then walk over to the house with the number stored in the box, this would go against the rules and Alice or our program would get an error. But when this happens in a parallel universe of the path not taken, there is no error, only the footprints left behind by Bob. Now you probably want to know how this analogy maps onto real computer systems. What are the actual footprints that Alice can follow if Alice is a malicious computer program? Well, that footprint is really all about timing. You see, when Bob goes to house number eight, that's like our CPU accessing a particular address in the virtual memory system. Whenever this happens, the CPU keeps around extra breadcrumbs so that accessing data from that address is faster the next time we look. We don't get to see these breadcrumbs directly, but we can time how long it takes to read data again from that virtual address. Basically, Alice times herself walking over to house number eight versus every other house on the block. Because of the path paved by Bob while walking to house number eight earlier, it's just a little bit easier for Alice to get there than to any of the other houses. The timing difference is subtle, but measurable. And so Alice can infer through this timing trick where Bob had walked. And that in turn tells her the secret number that was in Bob's private box number one. Alice can then repeat the process and learn the secrets of all the other boxes. In technical terminology, this type of exploit uses both speculative execution and a side channel. The side channel in this example is when Alice times her trips to each house to detect which path is the fastest. The fact that Bob visited house number eight is revealed, 
but not because Alice saw the number 8 anywhere, but because of the timing trick. Side channel attacks are often great examples of jumping out of the system. Another famous side channel attack goes back to the days of CRT monitors, the same kind of old-timey displays that required the brave protection of flying toasters and grazing sheep screensavers. Imagine that you're sitting in a room with no windows and working on a computer with no internet connection. Is it possible for somebody to figure out what you're up to? Well, apparently the answer is yes, through a technique known as Vanak freaking. That's freaking with a PH. By placing an antenna near your windowless room, one can detect the radio signals produced by the electron beam that paints the image on the screen. The signals can be reconstructed to reproduce the image on your no longer private monitor. Finally, I wanted to briefly mention a class of attacks where a process running on a virtual machine breaks out of the container and is therefore able to control the underlying operating system and hardware. As we discussed earlier, a virtual machine provides an abstraction of a physical computer, even though the virtual machine itself is just a program running on a physical computer, or perhaps within another virtual machine. Imagine a box within a box within a box and so on. Why, there's a whole universe in there! Dude, there's a universe in all of us. Nothing inside of a given box should be able to get out, or at least that's the assumption. And once again, security researchers have found various clever ways of jumping out of the system. For example, the Cloudburst hack from over a decade ago found a vulnerability that allowed the program running inside of a virtual machine to write data into the memory of the host operating system. This vulnerability allowed an attacker to create a control channel between a program running within the VM out to the real world outside of the boundaries of the VM. From there, the attacker could do arbitrarily bad things to the host machine, like a sheep that jumped out outside of your monitor and started eating your post-its on your desk. Again, this is very, very clever and very, very juicy. So those were some examples of breaking system boundaries that I personally found kind of fascinating and exciting. Do you have any fun examples of jutsing? Not just in the software domain, but in the real world or in other domains? maybe in fiction, please send an email to thebeyondpod at gmail.com. I love hearing examples of these kinds of clever escapes and exploits and breakings of the fourth wall. Meanwhile, thank you so much for listening. The transcript of this episode is available at thebeyondpod.com. See you all again soon. End transmission.